0: Are you the spy the world needs, or the spy the world deserves? Well, let's find out with SpyCraft, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be?
1: Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Join.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 72 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So this show's a little tiny bit later than I wanted it to be, you know, life stuff as as always. But, uh, you know, actually, it's it's nice to be sitting down and, and doing one of these again. I feel like it's actually been a very long time since, uh, since I've sat down and done kind of a... Uh, a traditional UMB cast or a go in depth on a game just cause, uh, I guess two shows ago we had the the news, which was a lot of fun. And then, the uh, the last episode, which was the, uh, the Patreon hangout, which was a huge blast. Uh, you know, that, that came out. So, uh, I haven't sat down to, to do a deep dive in a little while. And, um, and, and it felt, it felt pretty good to kind of, to, to buckle down and open about a million tabs in Chrome and, and dig around and, and find some, uh, some gems, some insights about uh about this week's game. Uh aside from that, summer's here. I have to talk about the weather every episode cuz hey, that's 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 my thing. That's what I do. And uh yeah, so you know the uh summer's here. It's 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 warm. It was I think when I was driving home it said like 29 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. It's comfortable, comfortably warm, Fahrenheit kind of uh midsummer comfortable weather. So I just got in from a bike ride, and uh, it was a bit of an eventful one. Uh, I've got to say, I kind of have this little really fast kind of 12K route that I do around my house just kind of weekday uh, evenings, and I was riding along uh, along Lakeshore Avenue, just uh, in Toronto here, and in the west end of Toronto, and... Uh, two guys riding in front of me, and I was kind of annoyed because (laughs) these guys were kind of, they blew right past me. And one of the guys was like older. He looked like he was in his 50s or his 60s and, uh, you know, going way really fast. And I was like, oh, I better keep up with these guys. And I couldn't. I was just, uh, my calf is sore. So I couldn't quite uh, pour it on the way I would like to. And then all of a sudden, basically uh, the older guy, I just see him from a distance and he basically just like flips over his handlebars and uh, and takes a header right onto the pavement. And, uh, you know, luckily... We were on the bike path on Lakeshore, so uh, he came close to a, to a pickup truck, but it didn't quite clip him. So uh, I'm a little delayed even uh, tonight doing the show because uh, I stuck around until until the ambulance showed up because he was complaining about some back pain and some trouble breathing. So uh, exciting evening. <laughs> yeah. But uh, all that aside, uh, even email wise this week, I burned through all the non-game related emails uh, on the new show and uh, haven't gotten any kind of additional general emails. So uh, let's get right to it.
1: You're listening to the Upper
0: Memory Block Podcast. Time for over.
1: From the ashes of the Cold War rises a new threat to world order. We've got a situation. We're building the team. You're on it. Rogue operatives have turned mercenary, forming dangerous new alliances to challenge world peace. What drives this game is reality. We asked the men who ran the two largest spy agencies in the world, what keeps you awake at night? What are the most dangerous scenarios looming in our future? To me, the most important foreign policy problem in the world today is the future of Russia. As an elite CIA operative, only you can stop a conspiracy to assassinate world leaders. No one you know can be trusted. Gather the intelligence you'll need to uncover the plot and the skills you'll need to stay alive. You'll be trained to think and act like a spy working deep undercover. Forced to make life and death decisions and tough moral choices.
0: You can also take your investigation online and in real time communicate with a shady double agent, or you can acquire important clues from other players if you think you can trust them. Every single puzzle, every single decision that the player is forced to make is taken from events right out of Colby and Kalugan's careers.
1: As in the world of espionage, the line between right and wrong, friend and foe, blur. This is their idea of a game. Spycraft, the great game. Available for Windows 95. From Activision. Good luck.
0: So, as you may have guessed, this week we're talking about a game that I basically just picked out of my GOG library. Now, it's called Spycraft, the great game. Uh, Spycraft is a standalone game developed and published by Activision. Though, um, the exact circumstances of uh, the fact that it's developed and published by Activision is actually a bit interesting. We'll get to that later. Uh, this game came out in the year 1996. Now, this game is uh, is actually pretty easy to miss with Google. Uh, there's a tabletop role-playing game called Spycraft, and that actually dominates searches for this game. Uh, this may lead people to believe that this is an RPG. And, um, well, it's not. So, you know, like we do, let's talk about the genre. Um, searching instead of for Spycraft alone for uh, Spycraft The Great Game pulls up the proper info and reveals the game's true genre, adventure to be specific this is a full motion video adventure game so we've talked about adventures before and in many ways this one is is pretty standard as an adventure game player you're put in the role of uh, of one or more protagonists who are issued a task or quest early in the game either explicitly or through a situation now to fulfill that quest or task or whatever it is you want to call it you, uh, and possibly some companions will need to solve a series of puzzles. You'll need to navigate through the world. You'll need to interact with NPCs, manage your inventory, and uh, all the rest of those adventure game tropes that we're very familiar with after 72 episodes of this show. Uh, puzzles take many forms, from logic to history to mathematics to almost anything else you can think of, and some <laughs> puzzles, you know, that even defy our ability to, to figure out. Now, those ones, those ones are bad. Um, <laughs> uh, now... One wrinkle to the traditional adventure formula with this game, um, is actually kind of a product of the time it came out. Well, this is certainly a traditional point-and-click adventure game. It's delivered to us via full motion video. Now, I've tangentially discussed full motion video adventures a few times before, uh, you know, with sequels to Gabriel Knight. Uh, I, I guess you could consider, uh, What's it called? Seventh Guest, a full motion video game, though it's not exactly like this one, or maybe it is. But anyways, you know, I've talked about them before. Basically, this type of adventure game unfolds via a series of film scenes depicting real actors against either real or computer generated backgrounds. While they attempt to emulate more traditional Hollywood productions, the quality of the writing, directing, acting, props, and set design tend to be a bit lower leading to FMV adventure games gaining a pretty poor reputation for being a little bit cheesy and uh, and generally inferior to, uh, to more popular 2D animated adventures. Now, navigation in FMV adventures tends to be node-based. Uh, that is, you're not usually free to move around anywhere in the world, only to specific static points depicting certain seas where you interact with the world via hotspots. Now, this isn't true of all of them, but... It is sort of a trope of uh, of the type of game that we're talking about here.
1: You are listening to the Upper Podcast.
0: All right, time to get to the story. Now, since this is an adventure game, the story is somewhat paramount, as it is the vehicle that takes us through kind of the whole experience. Uh, this game is steeped in reality, or at least as much reality as maybe a police procedural kind of LA law law and order type show is. <laughs> they say it's real, and eh, we'll see how real it actually is. Anyways, it's the year 1996 and your name is Thorne. You're a rookie CIA agent working out of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Since the whole game is seen from a first-person perspective and your gender is never specified, Thorne really is an avatar of you. Uh, the intention is that you place yourself, male or female, black or white, you know, whatever you are, uh, that you place yourself into Thorne's shoes and you play the game as yourself, with everyone referring to you as Thorne, but hey, whatever. So after a short text and narration intro, which kind of contrasts the credo and official honorable tenets of the CIA with the more realistic views of a field agent, We cut to the game interface. Now, this is still technically the intro, so we'll dispense with the discussion of the UI for eh, a minute or two. Um, What we see is that we're reading a newspaper that is probably supposed to be The Washington Post, though it's just called The Washington, and there's a blank where post would be, so uh, I guess they couldn't get the rights. The headline on The Washington reads, President will sign treaty in Moscow. We also seem to have a message on our PDA. Yep, you heard right our PDA. Hey, it's 1996. Opening it, we see we're needed at Langley. Well, let's head there. And once we do, that's where the real intro begins.
1: We have an inside, only one we managed to turn. Turned out to be the cousin of his wife. All right, let's get started. You all know Bruce Jeffries. We brought him back for this mission. People, this is serious. Gene and I have chosen Jeffries to run this off. He's drafted David Holt from the DI and Jamie Seaton from s and as in-house support. He's also going to need a dependable operative in the field, which is why you're all here. Lang, Asai. Parker. And Thorne. Eugene promises me you're the best of the new crop. Now you've got to keep that promise. I'll make sure one of them does. I want you all at the farm at 0600. Bruce has designed your regiment. Top performer gets the mission and reports back here for the full briefing. Good luck.
0: So, something's up. But since the CIA is the CIA, they won't tell us what it is or what we need to know uh, until they think we need to know it. For now, it's off to the farm for some training. While this isn't where the game proper begins, it's as good a place as any to, to jump to gameplay. So, how do we navigate through the world of Spycraft? Well, as I've already mentioned, this is an FMV adventure presented to us through Thorn's eyes. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, we never see Thorn, nor do we ever hear Thorn speak. Uh, you're referred to in a gender-neutral way throughout the entire game, so like I said, Thorn is you. The game has a few common UI elements. Mostly, the main bulk of the screen real estate is, uh, is taken up with, uh, with your current view. This is the main uh, this main view is your kind of your portal to the world it shows an image of your current location uh, albeit at times the uh, image if especially if there's video playing is a little bit small uh, but you know it shows an image of your current location uh, it shows any people or items you may be interacting with or even more often it will show the desktop of your current workstation yep you're a spy sure you you skulk around in the shadows and whatnot but you also spend a lot of time in this game staring at a uh, 16-bit color representation of a desktop on a CRT monitor attached to a computer-generated 486 in uh, one or another of uh, the CIA's facilities. It turns out that spies spend a lot of time on computers in the mid-90s, and uh, we'll get to more about that in a sec. Along the bottom of the screen, you see a black bar, which uh, generally contains a briefcase uh, in the lower left corner this is your inventory interface. You click arrows left and right to scroll through items and either uh, inspect them more closely or to set them as your active cursor to use with someone or something in traditional adventure game format. Now, on the bottom right is one of your most important tools, your trusty PDA. Now, Those of you who are a bit younger might not know what these things are. PDAs, or personal digital assistants, are basically the predecessor to the modern smartphone. So when you're out and about, your PDA is your link to the rest of your team. Uh, It's also linked to your intelligence contacts and your bosses, not to mention your connection to the vast secure libraries of most of the major intelligence agencies who are friendly to you. Through your PDA people will contact you via email and video message, which, uh, which is quite the feat in 1996. Somehow, this thing had a pretty sweet data connection. So basically, you can treat this thing as the mother of all PDAs since it effectively does everything my iPhone 5S does right now in a slightly clunkier way. So the PDA specifically has four separate functions. Comlink, where you receive your messages. Datalink, where you browse intelligence databases. Newslink, where you can read or watch relevant news reports, and finally, if you were playing the Windows 95 version, Weblink, which connected you to an honest-to-goodness website on an honest-to-goodness 1996 internet server, which contained continuously updated content relating to the game world. Sadly, this site is no longer active, and uh, I do not know the URL, so uh, I couldn't find it on Internet Archive either. So, we've been told we need to get current on our training at the farm. Now, the farm is actually Camp Perry, a U.S. naval base in Virginia, though it is not acknowledged as such. And this is kind of like true life now. This is outside of the game, though it is not officially acknowledged as such. It is strongly believed that Camp Perry is indeed the main training facility for the CIA. We have a head over there using uh, the game's travel interface, also known as, hey, guess what? Travel Link. So Travel Link comes up whenever you're not inside a particular room. Uh, if you're outdoors, it lists available cities to travel to along the bottom and a set of available location tiles uh, describing destinations in the current city. Selecting a location then drills down into sets of subtiles on subscreens uh, depicting more detailed locations within that space. You know, either spots outside, various rooms inside, blah blah blah. So once we arrive at Camp Perry, affectionately nicknamed The Farm... Uh, we meet Frank Milkowski, your uh, training director. I guess we could call him. Milkowski is played by veteran actor Charles Napier, who you may recognize from his roles as a uh, you know rough and tumble cops or straight laced military men in movies such as Rambo First Blood, The Silence of the Lambs, and even the first two Austin Powers films. Uh, Milkowski is here to show us the ropes. In fact, this whole sequence is a pretty cleverly disguised tutorial showing us how we're sort of going to basically play through the bulk of the game. To start off, the boring stuff. Uh, We're going to do some image analysis. Uh, Like I said, a lot of this game involves us using simulated computers on our real computers. It's actually pretty meta. Uh, Image analysis involves a program you access on a CIA computer terminal. You perform analysis on two separate images using various features of uh, of the image analysis program. <laughs> the first one is a uh, CSI-like image enhancement and uh, uh, function, which uh, you know allows you to enhance the uh, license plate number on uh, on a car taken from an aerial photo. Uh, another one in uh, in the second one, you overlay various uh, images and various filters to uh figure out which you know tanks on a tank farm are that are actually running now when you feel you've arrived at the right answer in either of these uh tests you click on the report button which is located kind of on the bottom of the screen and um you know you'll generate an email to to Milkovsky. you see the email being typed out and then at certain points uh, you're given a set of multiple choice selections to choose from so you know in the uh The car situation, it'll be like, you know, Dear Milkowski, comma, I have determined the license plate number of the car it is, and then you'll have the pop-up of, you know, maybe five different license plate numbers. So uh, from there, you have to choose the right one. If you choose the correct information based on your research, you will succeed. Now, as you move through the game, A huge variety of tools are made available to you, including uh, more image analysis tools and uh, some manipulation tools, including a very rudimentary uh, Photoshop-like image doctoring tool. You get things like audio analysis tools, access to surveillance systems, and my favorite, the CAT, or K-A-T, which means Kennedy assassination tool, which uh, helps you determine bullet trajectories from uh, bullet holes and things like that. Every time you use a tool, And you come to a conclusion, you click report, you generate an email to whoever is involved in the situation at that current time, and uh, you select the proper combination of variables, sort of like uh, CIA Mad Libs. So after you prove yourself an adept image analyzer, you head out to the zone. Uh, The zone is where you practice traversing an area and uh, either sneaking around enemies or, barring that, quickly dispatching them with your trusty handgun. Uh, This is basically... A node-based rail shooter minigame with a few different paths through uh, through each test. It's sort of like uh, the third-person levels of uh, Rebel Assault, except they're first-person. Uh, this requisite arcade sequence will come in handy later in the game, as as you may suspect. So after you complete the zone crossing, uh, you get debrief, debriefed by uh, by Bruce Jeffries, who's kind of running your op. Uh, we met him in the introduction. And uh, he's played by another working actor named Mark Phelan. Phelan? Phelan? P-H-E-L-A-N. I think it's Irish. Anyways. uh, As he's debriefing you, an event occurs. I guess we could put it that way. And uh, that event causes you to be rushed back to Langley. Uh, It turns out there's no more time for testing. Uh, Nobody won the game. Uh, There's a clear and present danger. Instead of competing for the mission, you're all assigned to it as a team. the uh, The three of you that were competing for the position. And since this is the CIA and now it's time for you to know what's going on, we tell you. It turns out that a Russian presidential candidate has been assassinated in Moscow. At least I think it was in Moscow. Let's say it was in Moscow. Um... It's believed that the President of the United States is also in danger from this same assassin. Your goal is to find the assassin before the assassin finds the President. Now, along the way, you'll head off to Moscow, the UK, Crimea, and uh, and even more in an effort to further your investigation. You'll also encounter double agents, friendly and not-so-friendly informants, and even be required to make some morally challenging choices relating to interrogation and possibly even torture. Uh, You'll also encounter two other notable characters along the way. We're going to talk about these guys quite a bit, but uh, this is as good a place as any to introduce them. First, former CIA director William Colby. He's playing himself. Now, Colby was the real-world director of the CIA from 1973 to 1976. He advises you via direct face-to-face interaction, as well as video messages at certain points throughout the game. Uh, on the other side of the coin, we have former KGB Major General Oleg Danilovich Kaluguin. He also lent both his background knowledge and his acting chops to the game. Uh, he plays himself as well. And uh, during the 70s, Kaluguin... I think that's how you say his name. Kaluguin. Yeah, Kaluguin. Blah, blah, I'm bad at names. <laughs> uh, anyways, he was in charge of uh, most of the KGB's activities in the United States during the 70s and I think the early 80s. So, by traveling the world... By like gathering intel, by using your brain, in addition to the myriad of tools available to you on your computer, and uh, every once in a while, uh, some some lucky uh, interviewing skills, you eventually stop the assassin and uncover a plot that reaches all the way to the top of the CIA itself. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for okay let's get to the tech focus here so to run spycraft the great game you needed at least the following an ibm or compatible 486 dx2 66 megahertz cpu with at least eight megabytes of system ram Ah, well (laughs) i've said it before and i'll say it again uh out of all my friends I was the only one, I'm pointing at myself, you guys can't see it, but I was the only one to have a 486DX266. That machine was the one I have, honestly, when I think of like a gaming machine, that is the one that I think of. I'm not sure why, but it always stuck out to me. Maybe it's because this was the machine I tinkered with the most, or at least it was the machine that I learned how to do most of my tinkering on. You know, I upgraded the sound card in that thing, I doubled the RAM from 8 to 16 meg, I swapped in an additional hard drive, I upgraded the modem, I cut myself on it repeatedly while doing all of those things on the jagged metal case. You now, also all of my friends had 486 so my machine was better. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure how my dad got his hands on it. I never really asked these questions. We always had computers, but uh, the first store-bought machine that I know we actually had was our Pentium 200, which was the one after this one. Um, anyways, tangent aside, On top of that 486, you also needed a double-speed CD-ROM drive, which, back to the tangent, I also installed for the first time on that 486. Um, You needed 30 megs of hard drive space, and you also needed a Microsoft-compatible mouse. Well, I kind of went sideways there, didn't I? Shouldn't do these after bike rides. Now, graphically, we're looking for VESA Local Bus, which, uh, which I've explained in the past or uh, also PCI video supporting 16-bit high color at 640 by 480 resolution. So we're beyond SVGA now. Uh, in high color, we use 15 or 16 bits, and that is two bytes, uh, to store color information for each pixel. Now in 15-bit color, each of the color channels, red, green, and blue, get five bits to store their values in. They're all nice and even-steven. Uh, the extra bit is either ignored or used to store alpha channel information, which could be used for uh, for some transparency effects. A uh, 15-bit color allowed for a total palette of 32,768 possible colors, which is way more than 256. Now, we're not talking about 15-bit color here. We're talking about 16-bit color. Now, of course, 16, if my math is correct, does not divide evenly into 3. So who gets that extra bit? Now, On different implementations, different colors got the extra bit, but generally, the extra bit went to green. Apparently, the human eye is more sensitive to variations in shades of green. Uh, You know, this might be some vestigial survival trait that stopped us from eating poisonous plants or something. So having that extra bit in the green slot, or in any of the slots really, brings our color depth to 65,536. Now, sound-wise, we're looking at a Sound Blaster 16 or better. 8-bit sound cards such as the original Sound Blaster or Sound Blaster Pro were explicitly unsupported. I'm not sure if they even had uh, Windows drivers. Now, for the DOS version, you needed at least DOS 6. And for the Windows version, you needed at least Windows 95 and a Windows 95-compatible machine. Now, this also meant, which, and this was an issue at the time that you needed appropriate 32-bit Windows drivers for all your Windows compatible hardware. In fact, we're even getting into the early days of DirectX support with Spycraft. So, you needed not only to make sure your hardware had Windows drivers, it also needed to be DirectX compatible. I think no, I don't think this game had any OpenGL cuz frankly there's no uh, there's no 3D rendering in this game. Finally. And man, I don't think I've ever discussed system requirements for this long. Finally, If you wanted to take advantage of the online component of the game, you also needed at least a 14400 BPS modem with an equivalently fast internet connection plus a web browser. Around this time period, we're looking at like IE3, IE4, sorry, that's Internet Explorer. And man, we've definitely come a long way since, uh, since those days. Sorry, I'm, I'm a web developer by day, as, as you guys well know, and uh, stupid web cross-web browser compatibility stuff and dealing with old versions is something I deal with all the freaking time, so uh, this, this is near and dear to my heart. Now, the game's music, which unfortunately you're not hearing right now, uh, was composed by Jihan Huang. Uh, the same composer that did the amazingly memorable music from the Mech Warrior games that came out of Activision around the same time. Oddly, maybe because this game wasn't quite as popular, I could not find any soundtrack recordings. Uh, you know, you were able to hear some of the music along with the intro. And, um, you know, the music of the game was interesting a little bit fitting if somewhat generic Uh, i definitely feel like they could have done a bit more with it than they did i mean i love uh you know i think the music you heard in the intro may have been orchestral but the rest of the game was meaty and to me it doesn't make a ton of sense to have all this pretty well produced fmv and then have kind of meaty music under it you know why not just go the rest of the way maybe there's a storage issue i don't know you're listening to the upper memory block podcast Time for all right. We're trucking along here pretty well. Time for the dev story. Now, I won't get into a huge amount of detail on on the kind of the early days of all this stuff, but Spycraft really all starts with a little company called Infocom. Yep, the venerable text adventure juggernaut founded in 1979. Uh, suffice it to say that around 1986. Activision acquired Infocom. Now, this was due to some odd missteps on the part of Infocom's management and um, some other, shall we say, issues with uh, Infocom's corporate culture. Now, firstly, Infocom's games such as Zork, which I promise everyone I will cover one of these days, it was a huge hit and uh, it continued selling well years after its initial release. Now, despite this, It was deemed necessary for Infocom by their management to invest in the up-and-coming database software market with uh, a product called Cornerstone. So the really great game maker was trying to put out some database software. Well, hey, guess what? Surprise, surprise, it failed. Next, as we roll into the mid-80s, Sierra and other companies like LucasArts and more started to push their graphic adventure games, uh, which were deemed to be vastly superior to Infocom's older kind of Z-Machine text adventures. Infocom sales and marketing thought this would be an amazing idea to jump on this train. You know, we got to do graphics. We got to do graphics. This is the next thing. This is the next thing. Let's do it. However, as developers sometimes do, the development side of the house was very opposed to using graphics and kind of only worked to them in begrudgingly saying, oh, it's difficult to integrate graphics into the existing Z machine engine, blah, blah, blah. I'm a developer and I don't want to do this. So I'm coming up with excuses Uh, around this same time. The Trouble Company was acquired by Activision, where it would all stay until, you know, too little, too late, blah, blah, blah. Activision would close down Infocom in 1989. And uh, I was pull- I was reading an article on, 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 I believe it was IGN, or maybe it was PC Gamer. And uh, the author there kind of said something good. You know, don't fool yourself into thinking this is like an EA situation. This wasn't Activision acquiring Infocom and crushing them. No, this was more... Infocom didn't move with the times, and when they did, sorry, it was too late, and it just wasn't worthwhile to keep them around. So in 1989, they went away. Now, that should have probably been the end of it, right? Infocom's closed down. But Activision had all this Infocom IP in its vault, so hey, why not do something with it, right? So they took the most popular of Infocom's legacy text adventures, you know, Zork 1, 2, and 3, and and more. I don't know a ton of them because I'm not a text adventure guy, but. I'm sure you all do. Uh, and they sold them in a compendium format. That is, they, they took all these adventures and sold them in a single package, and they didn't put in all the great little feely pack-in things that uh, that Infocom traditionally had. <laughs> I really need to do a Zork show, guys. I'm sorry. So, while well, it didn't set the world on fire, the pack actually didn't fare all that badly, especially considering Activision had put almost no resources into this project. It was basically free money. Well, if people wanted to buy Infocom games... Maybe they should revive the studio, uh, if in name only. Now, this led to the development and the release of Return to Zork. Now, while the game took place in the same universe as the previous Zork games, it was completely different gameplay-wise. Where the original games were traditional text-only adventures, Return to Zork was the other end of the spectrum. It was incredibly graphical. I mean, you played from a first-person view... You interacted with digitized actors on top of virtual environments. This was the Zork game that graphic adventure aficionados wanted. It was released in 1993 by Activision, but under the Infocom name. So with this success kind of under their belts, the company looked to expand their footprint in adventures. I mean, Activision was traditionally kind of more of an action and console-based company. But, you know, since they had the legacy of Infocom in the PC realm, they were using that to drive sales. Uh, They wanted to take advantage of this new CD-ROM format that games like uh, Myst and The Seventh Guest had popularized. And of course, since they had the capacity of a CD, what else are you going to do but full motion video? I mean, it was the style at the time. So it was decided that uh, two games would be made. The first would, of course, be another sequel to Zork. This would become Zork Nemesis. The other would be a gritty spy adventure. So Activision gathered a fairly accomplished team. Uh, In the lead, since this was a video project, was director Ken Barris. Uh, He'd done work on some previous games and had a proven track record in, in doing this kind of thing. On top of this, a group of designers and programmers were brought together, including lead programmer Tom DeSalvo. Now Tom had come from Sierra and had games like the original Gabriel Knight under his belt. Now the goal of this spy game would be to create an experience rooted in reality you know, something that would help the player understand what it was like to be a spy in the modern day. I guess at that time, they meant the mid-90s. To do this, the team needed domain experience. Now, to get that experience, they hired on the two experts we already discussed, former CIA Director William Colby and former KGB Major General Oleg Kalugwin. Now, the game designers basically asked these two guys, what they thought the most dangerous scenarios were that the world was facing in the mid-90s. Of course, they sort of both agreed that uh, the political climate in Russia was was one of those things. Uh, Kalugin himself states that uh, Russia was undergoing a major societal change, kind of, you know, with the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall and all of this that was very recent at that time. And, uh, you know, this game would explore some of the ramifications of of that change, both to Russia itself and on the rest of the world, especially the United States. Next in discussions with Colby and Kalugwin came the game's puzzles. Now, the two men explained, to some degree I would think, probably not all the way through, uh, the tools that were used in the trade of spying. Now, these tools are not the sleek and sexy gadgets and, you know, remote control watches and shoe phones and stuff of, of Bond movies uh, they tended more towards tools that would help in, yay, data analysis. Um, the puzzles were mostly constructed around these investigative aids, and these t- kind of took the form of, of all those programs that we talked about you using. It turns out each of these puzzles ended up sort of being its own mini-game, uh, figuring out how to best use your, your newly issued tool to solve the problem at hand. Now, while you do have an inventory in the game, it's pretty lightly used, you use it here and there, but, uh, this is more kind of, uh, use the program to solve solve the puzzle game. You know, maybe you have a disc in your inventory you have to throw into the computer or you have a phone number you have to look at or something like that. But really, this is not a take a thing apart. This is not a Sierra take widget and, you know, combine pulley with chicken or whatever. <laughs> now, all these various tools needed to be made available to you, to you at, uh, at the appropriate time. So the designers came up with the whole idea of the uh, computer workstation and the PDA interfaces. These, again, were slightly enhanced versions of the tools you'd use in real life. I mean, like I already said, in 1996, you were not sending pre-recorded video messages across, like, analog cell networks. You weren't even doing that across the internet. So, you know, the claims that this game is 100% rooted in the real world might not be entirely true. I also suspect that some of the programs that you're given to use, like the audio analysis tools and the image manipulators and all that stuff, were probably a little bit dumbed down. You know, this isn't, like, a a real-life simulator. This is... A game. So as much as they claim reality, 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 because everything you read out of Activision pushes that. This game is real life. Well, meh, nah, maybe the game is like CSI, let's say. So from the FMV perspective, director Ken Barris filmed most of the scenes on physical sets uh, at I'm not sure exactly which studio, but uh in, in Hollywood, California. Uh, This wasn't really the norm for FMV games, which tended more toward almost completely uh, CG sets, and uh, I'm pretty sure that was generally for cost reasons, and also, you know, if you were doing uh, space games with Alien Worlds and all that stuff, uh, it was a lot cheaper to computer generate a set. Uh, The game's opening crane shot through the main hall of CIA headquarters really does give you a good impression off the bat. Uh, If anything, it reminded me of uh, the introduction to maybe, you know, a a Tom Clancy book or movie, like, you know, Some of All Fears or uh, Clear and Present Danger or something like that, or uh, even the introduction to uh, to The West Wing. It actually, the music kind of reminded me of that. And I think was the, the show may even have been on at that point. I'm not even sure. Now, while this game doesn't have the star power of something like Privateer 2, uh, there are some names here. And frankly, as we saw from Privateer 2, star power doesn't always save your game. Uh, so aside from Kaluguin and Colby playing themselves, we have uh, actor James Caron, As deputy director Warhurst, Uh, he's been in films such as uh, the original Wall Street and uh, Will Smith's The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, Dennis Lipscomb plays director Sterling. Uh, He was prolific in uh, the 80s and 90s, acting in movies like War Games and uh, one of my favorite movies, Under Siege, Guilty Pleasure. And uh, he appeared on TV shows including The X-Files, L.A. Law, ER, and Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman uh tim Desarn plays our main bad guy he's seen in fight club cabin in the woods and uh live free or die hard among other things and for you trekkies out there including me uh your teammate jamie seaton she's kind of like the, the the geek of the group uh she's played by chase masterson who uh had a recurring role as lita on uh, star trek deep space 9 my personal favorite star trek series uh we've got charles napier and mark Philan as we've already discussed and uh You know, overall, while there aren't any megastars on this cast, they're all pretty solid actors. Uh, Those who are still with us, because sadly some of them have passed on, uh, you know, they're still working pretty steadily today. Uh, Barris's direction is good, if a little bit limited by uh, the first-person view of the game, and uh, of course, Colby and Kaluguin's performances are a little bit wooden, but hey, they're career spies, (laughs) they're not actors. I mean, especially Colby, it kind of seems like they kind of gave him the script five minutes before said memorize this or you know what maybe just keep it on the desk and don't look like you're reading it so it's pretty bad but uh, that's really the only thing and you can't blame the guy now oddly uh the original plan to release this game under the infocom label was uh, was at some point scrapped activision management decided it would be better to expand the scope of activision's own offerings say hey look we have adventure games uh and not to quote unquote dilute them by using the name of their now defunct acquisition uh Perhaps they felt people knew knew the score, and releasing under Infocom wouldn't help. They'd be like, oh yeah, Activision owns them, so what's the difference? Well, whether this was the case or not, I don't know. Uh, the game released under Activision's flag, and uh, despite reviewing well, and even receiving Adventure Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World for 1996, the game was only moderately successful. It may have been a timing thing, you know, with the game coming out, kind of the... Uh, as the the interest for pure adventure gaming was kind of waning. It may have been an advertising thing. And, uh, you know, maybe just Activision wasn't well-known for adventure games. So people might have thought, "Eh, Activision, adventure game, meh. Full motion video, double meh. And, you know, maybe because of this relatively poor performance, uh, a promised sequel to the game never materialized. Uh, The game's engine was used for another game, Santa Fe Mysteries, The Elk Moon Murder. Uh, it also came out in 1996 and garnered even less recognition from uh, from gamers in the press. Though I did watch the intro, and it seems interesting enough.
1: You are listening to the
0: Upper so, where can you get Spycraft today? Well, if you want to get your hands on it, uh, you have only to visit GOG.com, either on the web or via their new Galaxy client, which recently entered public beta. We'll be talking about that in the next news show. But you can grab the game for five ninety nine dollars USD. So we didn't have any emails at the beginning, but we do have an email relating to Spycraft, and it is from Dave. And Dave writes, Joe, long-time listener, uh, I have used your show to introduce classic gaming to my two sons. They sometimes get a cross-eyed look at school when... Uh, they argue that Mist is better than Halo, but that's another story. I had to write in when I found out you were giving Spycraft a test drive. I refer to Spycraft as a hidden gem, but let me explain that a bit. On the surface, you could just call it an FMV adventure game, a genre that, rightly or wrongly, came to be much despised among the gaming public. The fact of the matter is, though, that Spycraft is really a hard game to nail down. Yes, it's got FMV elements, and it's unquestionably an adventure game, but some of the elements in its gameplay are ones that you just won't see in almost any other game. Certainly not all at once. I think part of the reason I like it so much is that it contains puzzles generally outside the norm of the standard stock of logic and inventory-based adventure game puzzles. Where else will you find a game that incorporates puzzles involving bullet trajectory analysis, sound file editing, rudimentary Photoshopery, digging through Usenet postings of the mid-90s, interrogation, map analysis... It's an enjoyable mix that you just don't see anywhere else. And cheesy FMV acting notwithstanding, the story actually hangs together very well. It draws you in, and there are multiple endings and branching path choices as well. I think the reason this game is virtually forgotten today, despite the fact that it won an Adventure Game of the Year award, is that it was released right as the adventure game genre was slowly descending into its long, dark, dormant period in the late 90s, which is a shame because it's one hell of a fun game to play. And yes, it was originally supposed to be an Infocom release. If we can convince you to get a Zork show up someday, this will do for now. Keep up the great work, Dave. Well, thank you, Dave. And also, I do have to thank you for hanging out with me on uh, on the Twitch stream while I was playing. I didn't quite get to finish uh, the game on the Twitch stream. I just kind of uh, YouTubed the rest of it. But uh, maybe one day I will, since um, I'm about halfway through, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, Dave definitely offered me some pointers when I got stuck and uh, also let me in on some uh, some behind the scenes info for the game. So, you know, if you guys if I'm ever playing streaming a game that you guys uh, are enjoying and you can hop in, I I, I would really appreciate it. You know, uh, I love hearing things. I I keep an eye on the Twitch chat while I'm streaming uh, these games and, you know, I interact and all that stuff. So it's it's all fun. So if you guys are around and I'm streaming, hey, feel free to come and come and chat with me.
1: Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the gamma quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y-Podcast.com. Just one one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com
0: So, does Spycraft the Great Game hold up today? I'll admit, this game is absolutely a product of its time. It feels very, very 90s. That said, though, like Dave said, this is absolutely not a throwaway FMV game. For the time, they got half decent actors. The writing is acceptable. Most of the locations are even real physical sets. Now, Sometimes the acting is a bit forced because of the whole first-person perspective thing. Frankly, I don't think actors love staring directly into the camera while they deliver their lines, and you can tell that from time to time. They're kind of like, eh. Also, the single perspective does make for a lot of quick cuts from one talking head to another in a multi-person scene, especially when you're kind of in with the bigwigs and they're like, I'm telling you what to do, and now I'm telling you what to do. It's kind of very like, cut, 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 and you're like, meh. But, you know, frankly, I'd, I'd put the overall quality of the film experience this game up against any 90s made-for-TV movie. I mean, this is not Oscar-worthy stuff by far, but honestly, it's it's good enough. Initially, also, the, the lower-res, kind of 16-bit color compressed and interlaced video is a little bit off-putting, it's a little bit dark, but, uh, you know, you get used to it pretty quickly. From a gameplay perspective... Moving from location to location is quick, and it's seamless, and, and though the gameplay really just amounts to a series of mini games, most of them are actually pretty fun, and you do actually end up experiencing a sense of accomplishment when you make an accurate report. Like, I remember when I was doing the bullet analysis, and I was having a little bit of trouble with it, when I figured it out, I felt good. You know, the story develops at a good pace, and it takes some interesting twists and turns, so, eh, you know, overall, it's pretty fun. So, Considering I had never heard of this game before in my life, and I just randomly picked it out of my GOG library, I'm not even sure how it got in there in the first place, I'm incredibly pleased. I mean, this game is definitely a forgotten gem that came out near the end of the era of adventure game dominance, and because of that, I think most of us skipped it. Well, now here's your chance to go grab it and give it a try. I mean, is it the best game in the world? No. Is it the best representation of a genre? No. Does it meet its goal of showing us the life of an intelligence agent? And maybe the Jack Ryan slash CSI movie version of it? Is it a fun and unique game? Yes, absolutely it is. Should you give it a try? If you like adventure games, yeah, I think you should. You are
1: listening to the Upper Henry Block Podcast.
0: So that is that for another show. Now, before I sign off, I want everyone to know about the giveaway for May. In honor of May the 4th, Star Wars Day that just passed, I'm giving away 10. Count them, 10 Star Wars games to one lucky listener. This is most of the humble bundle that ran recently. So we're looking at Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy, Dark Forces, Battlefront, KOTOR, KOTOR 2, Republic Commando, Empire at War, Jedi Knight 2... Uh, Starfighter and Dark Forces 2, which is Jedi Knight 1, which I covered a while back. Uh, if you just want to email Star Wars giveaway to podcast at umbcast.com, uh, you'll get a free chance to win, or you'll get a chance to win. Uh, I'll pick the winner before the end of the month, one entry per person, please, only. Uh, on the next show, now that the contest is all out of the way, I hope you guys do write in because this is a great one. On the next show, I will be going back to our friends at Origin. I haven't uh, visited them in a while. And we're going to talk about the Crusader series. That's Crusader No Regret and Crusader No Remorse. I'm not sure which one's first. I can't remember. I'll figure it out. I promise. So send me your emails and uh, look for some streams coming up over the next two weeks of me probably pretty ineptly playing Crusader. I haven't played these at all. These are ones that I have. Unlike this game, these are ones I had heard of and never got around to playing. So uh, I'm excited to give them a whirl. As always, send your email or your audio comments to podcast at UMBCast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at MoyerMultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at Patreon.com slash UMBCast. If you find some value from the show, please consider joining my, I believe, 37 current patrons in donating a buck or two per episode to help me with the costs of the show and to hit the next goal of weekly let's play sessions i updated the goals so there's three new ones if you guys want to go check them out i'm really excited to kind of hit them and and get some more stuff rolling i want to do more video content i want to have some swag i want to do some other stuff so uh go check them out patreon.com slash umbcast you can check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes at umbcast.com you can join the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash show and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on YouTube over at youtube.com slash umbcast. That's where I put uh, the edited recordings of my streams and my game research sessions, or whatever it is you want to call them. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some five-star reviews. I really, really like them, and I get an email when I get them, and it makes me happy. So, yay. (laughs) So that is that, and we will see you next time for Crusader here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle
1: control terminated.
0: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here?
0: Join.